Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. The social history of Turkey across the 20th century has produced a tension between state governance and religion. This history informs and shapes modern subjects as they try to live out an authentic vision of the present in Muslim civil society and the politics of religious freedom in Turkey, published with Oxford University Press in 2017. Jeremy Walton explores how members of three contemporary Muslim groups, the Noor community, the Gulen movement, and Alaviz, articulate religiosity within the Turkish public sphere. His rich ethnographic account takes the reader through Istanbul and Ankara to see how Islam is negotiated through religious classes, public conferences, charitable services, museum spaces, and the recollection of history. In our conversation, we discuss 20th century Turkish history, Muslim non-governmental organizations, religious gatherings, museum exhibits, Rumi, the Turkish state's relationship to Islam and secularism, interreligious tolerance and pluralism, nostalgia for Ottoman heritage, the ideal of religious freedom, and the recent shift in political and religious practices. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Without any further delay, here's my conversation with Jeremy Walton about Muslim civil society and the politics of religious freedom in Turkey. Welcome, Jeremy. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Islamic Studies. How's it going? It's going well. Thank you so much for this opportunity to speak with you, Christian. Yeah, it's great. Uh, Really enjoyed your your new book. Um, As somebody who's kind of has Turkey on the the kind of outskirts of my intellectual uh, knowledge, it was really great to to see this book uh, and go through this book because um, from what I do know about scholarship on uh, Islam and Turkey is it seems like you're you're putting a lot of uh, different groups and communities and ideas together in one place that often aren't uh, uh, placed in a, in, in a single kind of research project. So um, I think you did a really great job in that. That was my aspiration. I, I hope it came through in the book. So um, before we get into uh, the, the, the topics uh, and the communities that you explore and your ethnography, um, we always start a little bit about um, our authors. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about uh, what brought you to uh, Islamic studies? Um, were there influential folks that you studied with or uh, you know, intellectual uh, influences that uh, steered uh, your interest in Turkey or in uh, ethnographic research? Uh, what kind of developed you as the, the researcher you are? Certainly, it's a long and winding road, as John Lennon might say. <laughs> uh, I think really, probably it does ultimately go back to two aspects of my upbringing, which was in a small central 
Californian farming town, one of them having to do with my own upbringing as a, as a relatively devout Catholic, uh, an altar boy and all of that. And then the other having to do with the aspects of social, political, economic, and indeed racial exclusion, linguistic exclusion that uh, so sharply defined life in, in my hometown and that I became aware of at a very early age, but not in a very analytical fashion, I guess you might say. And uh, this could go on and on, of course. So I'll try to hit the the highlights of of the of the story. When I was in college at Reed College in Portland, Oregon, I imagined initially that I would study something like physics or chemistry. That those were what seemed to be serious subjects of inquiry to me uh, when I was growing up. But I quickly realized that uh, one could study human processes and and fates in very interesting ways. And at the same time, I was coming to some reckoning with my own metaphysical and theological perspectives and beliefs. And it led me to study religion uh, as an undergraduate major, which was something I never contemplated. I uh, didn't even realize that you could do that. Uh, and then, uh, sort of long story short, like many scholars of Islam who are not Muslims themselves, uh, particularly from the United States, coming to age in and around the era right before and after 9-11, I think I was fairly motivated by what I perceived to be a really pervasive and, and sadly still pervasive, though perhaps uh, somewhat differently, ignorance about Islam that uh, that produced a whole set of effects immediately after 9-11. And I think you, you, you can probably empathize with what I'm talking about. I entered anthropology without much, a graduate program in anthropology, without much of a sense of what specifically I was going to study. And really groping around in the dark for a topic, I realized that there was a lot of fascinating uh, and in some ways neglected material and 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 contexts in Turkey. I think I'd read a bit about the Ottoman Empire, but it really wasn't a straightforward process at all. And then finally, when I ultimately arrived in Istanbul for the first time, which was uh, incidentally one of the first times I'd also left the country, which I think was in some ways quite influential, I realized that this was a city that I could spend not only one, but many lifetimes studying, and that it would be a perfect place to examine some of the topics I was interested in, particularly how urban life and space shape religion, shape Islam, how Islam in turn shapes urban space. And that was really, uh, you know, in some sense, the fulcrum moment or the pivot, but uh, it had a long backdrop. Uh, uh, and I hope I've given you some sense of that, though. I'm sure I could say a lot more. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. So um, tell us a little bit about how this project began to emerge uh, and then where you took it in developing it as a book. Well, I think a lot of that has to do with the state of scholarship on Islam as in Turkey, as I found it as a, as a sort of early stage graduate student, combined with the influences of several uh, wonderful scholars and anthropologists of Islam, in particular Sabah Mahmoud, uh, who sadly, of course, as you know, passed away uh, not so long ago. And she was one of my early professors at the University of Chicago. On the one hand, 
surveying the field of scholarship on Islam in Turkey uh, at that time, which is approximately the early 2000s now, uh, one could say that most studies were based on primarily a focus on how state institutions and government practice shaped, formed, and in some sense even used Islam for a variety of purposes. And there was an older literature, and of course there were there were there are a variety of literatures within that. There's an older sort of more political science or sociology literature that really was quite instrumental in its uh, in its take on Islam as merely a tool of the state, or on the other hand, as something that the state uh, sought to suppress. Uh, and so, of course, this inevitably gets you into a whole series of topics related to what's known as Kemalism in Turkey, the doctrine of strong state secularism propagated by Mustafa Kemal Ataturk during the early days of the Turkish Republic in 1923 through the 1920s and 1930s, based on a more French model of laicism rather than liberal secularism. So a model whereby the state controls and to some degree uh, reduces the role of religion in public life. And there were some newer books that were critiquing this approach, in particular at that time, Yael Navarro-Yashin's first book, Faces of the State, had emerged and was quite uh, impactful. And yet there was still this fetishism of the state that seemed pervasive in the literature in relation to Turkish Islam, unless there were, unless we're talking about more historical studies of Sufism uh, or uh, other sort of, I guess, theological traditions that have a home in Turkey. And those were of a very different sort, often of a sort of late Orientalist flavor. So because of that, I felt that there really was a, a place for And I should say, too, here, uh, sorry, I'm interrupting myself, but there was also, I I noticed, a real segregation between studies of Sunni Islam in Turkey and studies of the major major minority tradition. I don't like the term minority so much, but we'll use it, of Alevism, uh, which I can talk about a bit more. And and those two, Sunni and Alevi, uh, scholarship on Sunnism and on Alevism never seem to speak directly to one another. And that also struck me as a major deficit in, in the literature on Islam in Turkey. So with all of that as a backdrop, it, it struck me that the real field of innovation and unexpected reformations and, and discourses of and about Islam was within what we might call civil society, not uh, directly related or rather perhaps problematically related to the state and its institutions. And that was something that I very quickly came to simply observe, I suppose, once I, once I was living in Istanbul for a little while, that there were these massive numbers of foundations and, and associations and other civil society institutions, non-governmental organizations that were promoting a whole variety of theological, ethical, moral and to some extent, of course, political and then also socioeconomic initiatives and programs, and that that had really been neglected uh, as a topic uh, in scholarship. And then uh, at the same time, I was deeply immersed in this field of scholarship on secularism that was really beginning to gain a lot of 
momentum at that time coming out of the work of Talal Assad. But then, as I mentioned before, Sabah Mahmoud, uh, one of his students, uh, was a mentor of mine. And I became very interested in how that literature might apply and also in some ways not apply to Turkey and its very strong statist secular traditions. So all of that was in some sense the the fuel for the fire that became my research. Hopefully it was uh, a, a fire that warmed rather than destroyed. <laughs> so uh, in this introduction, you kind of brought in um, a lot of key issues in terms of uh, the history and uh, how Turkish society works in terms of uh, the relationship between the state and uh, religious practices. Uh, but a lot of this is still uh, probably unfamiliar to uh, listeners. Um, so just walk us through some of the, the key things. What, what do we need to know about uh, governance and uh, religious life during the 20th century uh, to make sense of uh, your project? Uh, you know, what are kind of the key uh, factors that help us uh, understand or illuminate the themes you explore in your ethnography? Of course, that's a great question, Christian, and I'm glad you asked it directly that way, because as you know, it's always easy to become lost in the forest of one's own knowledge and presuppositions about a context uh, without giving a sense of, uh, of the lay of the land. So the Ottoman Empire was by most considered to be or have been the last great global Islamic empire the world has seen, and it lasted from approximately the late 13th, 14th century to 1923. There were, of course, a lot of different moments during the Ottoman Empire, and Islam certainly didn't play the same role in public life or governance throughout that period. But broadly, we can say that it was uh, crucial to the legitimacy of the Ottoman state, the sultanate, the caliphate. Uh, Indeed, it was the last uh, sort of more or less universally recognized caliphate. Uh, Though in the 19th century, there were a variety of reforms known together as the Tanzimat period that sought to render citizenship and belonging in the Ottoman Empire some in ways that would be familiar to Central and West Europeans. So uh, in some sense, an interest in privatizing religion uh, and producing something like modern citizenship. But all that said, the Ottoman Empire still remained uh, very much an Islamic state of sorts until the end of World War I and the dismantling of the empire, which is, uh, of course, a long story that I won't go into any detail about, though it is part of my current research project and interests, in some ways even more so now than it was during my first project. 1923, uh, Mustafa Kemal Atatürk and his cohorts successfully lead a military pushback against, uh, well, primarily the Greek army, which had occupied Western Anatolia or Asia Minor, and uh, after the Treaty of Lausanne, uh, succeed in establishing what is now the modern state of Turkey with a few changes on the map later, but for the most part, uh, that was the key moment. And inspired by a movement in the late Ottoman Empire, known as the Young Turks or Jean Turk, uh, uh, probably familiar at least to some listeners, Ataturk really uh, 
in some ways very individually, although obviously he had a cohort of supporters, set about attempting to establish and succeeding in establishing a state in which religion was, and therefore Islam, since uh, the founding of the of the Turkish Republic was also in some ways a matter of religious cleansing. Most Orthodox Christians uh, were either relocated to Greece or uh, had been murdered in the Armenian genocide tragically several years before. So Islam had become by far the dominant, uh, the dominant religious affiliation of the newborn Turkish citizens. But Ataturk was determined to render Islam and religion at large subservient to the interests of the state and to, uh, in some sense, engage in a, an internal civilizing project uh, to make Turks and Turkey as as much a modern European secular nation state as possible. And that implied to some extent the diminishment of Islam's presence in public life, but it also implied state control over Islam. And so uh, this is one of the great founding paradoxes in some sense of Turkey, of Turkey uh, as a modern nation state in the 1920s. On the one hand, you have efforts to reduce the influence and role of Islam in public life. On the other hand, you have the state monopolizing all sorts of religious and activities, the administration of mosques, the production of religious knowledge in schools, so on and so forth. So uh, in this sense, it is very much a project of what we would call laicism. Uh, there's no sense that religious diversity or individual liberty in matters of religious choice should be uh, should be promoted by the state, at least at that founding moment. The remainder of 20th century history of Islam, the 20th century history of Islam in Turkey is in some sense one of how that state project to monopolize and at the same time minimize the sway of Islam plays out against the, and in relation to the continual identification on the part of many, many uh, Turkish citizens as devout Muslims, Sunni Muslims, but then also uh, Alevis. And this becomes very complicated very quickly because they do have tend to have different political sensibilities and identifications. But broadly speaking, we can say since that since the 1980s, there has been a renewal of calls, or not a renewal, but a, a rise in calls for a diminished role on the part of the state in relation to religious affairs and simultaneously. And of course you see this particularly in recent years with the prime ministership and later presidency of Recep Tayyip Erdogan, an interest in sort of reinfusing the state and the government with a strong Sunni Muslim sensibility in an Islamist sense. So all of that is in some sense, the background. I don't, it's, it's always tempting to go into more detail than perhaps is necessary in this sort of context. So I hope that that wasn't too much. Uh, on the other hand, I can always provide more if it seems. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, but uh, so much of what you do in this book is provide us uh, with this kind of rich uh, ethnographic uh, portrait of uh, various communities and institutions, uh, you know, extending from those communities. Um, so maybe walk us through a little bit more detail about um, how you approached uh, your ethnographic project, uh, what were the communities that you looked at, and what were the types of institutions you were uh, kind of exhi uh, existing in your 
during your research? Absolutely. And actually, I'll begin by answering that question with, uh, with something that I should have said in the previous, uh, in response to the previous question, because it's quite crucial. The institution that in some sense is at the center of my ethnography and my scholarship is what, what some of, of your listeners might be familiar with, uh, the, the rather famous Islamic institution of the Vakf or Vakf in Turkish, uh, the charitable trust, which was authorized initially by a hadith of the Prophet Muhammad, but essentially the notion that uh, a pious Muslim can endow for perpetuity uh, money or real estate or some material good to the benefit of the community. Uh, of, of Muslims at large, the Ummah, right? And uh, in the Ottoman Empire, and this is why this is relevant to the previous question, in the Ottoman Empire, uh, the Vakf, the Vakf was one of the primary ways in which money and especially architectural projects, uh, well, money for architectural projects and other charitable projects, soup kitchens, majoresas, so on and so forth, mosques, of course, how this came about. With the establishment of the Turkish Republic in 1923, all of the properties that had been charitable foundations, Vakf, were nationalized and became part of the state administration, but at the same time were depoliticized uh, and attempted, uh, it was essentially, uh, uh, there was an attempt to sequester them away and, and not have them play as much of a role in life uh, in Turkey as they had in the Ottoman Empire. And so one could no longer simply go about endowing a vakf uh, in uh, the Turkish Republic as one could have in the Ottoman Empire if one were wealthy and so inclined. That remained the case, which is to say that there were no new foundations, vakf, uh, or for that matter, any other sort of institutions that we would recognize as non-governmental, established for the, for the most part throughout most of the 20th century until the 1980s when in the aftermath of uh, a coup in 1980 and then three years of military rule, there was a new uh, constitution which provided uh, a lot of different reforms. It's taken to have been a moment of uh, neoliberal reform in Turkey as it was in so many places in the world at that time. And suddenly it was possible to found new organizations, new VAKF, but also new associations. That's the other category of non-governmental organization. And with that, you had the rise of a lot of new uh, religious communities, Muslim communities that had previously either existed in a more underground fashion or hadn't really been consolidated as communities and institutions as such. This is certainly true of a variety of Sufi groups it's also true uh, in particular of Alevis. Uh, so this is, again, a bit of the backdrop. I arrive in Turkey in the early part of the millennium and find this very vibrant field of civil society institutions, non-governmental organizations, both foundations and associations, Vakflar uh, and Dernekler, as they're called in Turkish. The basic difference being that the Vakf can hold property and can, can invest uh financial resources uh, in a variety of ways, whereas the association technically cannot. But the point is that you have this new field of, uh, of, of vibrant Muslim institutions, which, uh, which exist in 
agonistic relationship to the Turkish state, which continues to do things, continues to hold a monopoly over mosque uh, construction and administration, the training of imams, uh, and so forth. So that's, again, uh, a lot of the backdrop. Within that, uh, I ended up focusing on three groups. Uh, so uh, first, because I mentioned them a couple of times, Turkish Alevis. Uh, there's been a lot of scholarship, a lot of great scholarship on Alevis. It's still difficult to give a, a very brief definition of Alevism as either a social or a doctrinal entity, but uh, I'll do my best. Uh, Alevis com- comprise something around 10 to 20 percent of Turkey's citizenry, though it's difficult to know exactly because Alevism is not uh, a category that you would have on a, a census form, uh, so you, you don't have any exact numbers. But in contrast to the majority of Sunni Muslims in Turkey, they, uh, Alevis, have a, have a very deep relationship to what we would generally think of as Shia traditions, in particular reverence for Ali Hussein, Hassan and Hussein. Uh, they certainly engage in the ritualized mourning over the battle of Karbala. And uh, so in that sense, doctrinally, they're quite distinct from Sunnis. Even perhaps more importantly, they have a ritual tradition that does not take place in mosques. Uh, the primary ritual is known as the gem. It's a form of, uh, of sema or uh, ritualized dance and music in, that happens in a collective gathering. And this is really the uh, distinctive, definitive Alevi ritual Many Alevis, not all, but many, do not pray in mosques. They feel a certain degree of alienation from that sort of dominant uh, Muslim tradition. So traditionally, Alevis were thought of as a very rural group in the Ottoman Empire and then in Turkey. But with waves of urbanization, particularly beginning in the 1960s, many Alevis moved to uh, the cities of the West and central Turkey, Ankara, Istanbul, Izmir, and then also to Germany and other parts of Western Europe. And as such, they became more identifiable sociologically as urban religious communities. And then they began to to found all of these organizations, uh, most of which have names that reflect, in particular, the centrality of this ritual, the gem to Alevi uh, collective identity and practice. So, so that was one group that I ended up focusing on, Alevis. And then in particular within that, uh, there was a the GEM foundation, as it's known, you can, you can see what I mean there, was a major uh, player in the field of Alevi civil society. A second group that I found myself involved with quite quickly and that seemed to be conducting a lot of uh, to have a lot of initiatives within the sort of public sphere at large. And this is mostly in Istanbul, I should say, though to some extent in Ankara as well, was what's known as the Noor community. Uh, and they focus largely on, they're a Sunni group, but they focus largely on the theology and in particular the Quranic commentary of a late Ottoman early Republican theologian named Said Norsi, Bedi Uzaman Said Norsi, This is a group that in some ways might be considered a neo-Sufi community. They no longer practice the sort of ritual rituals that one might associate with Sufism, such as uh, 
the utterance of the names of God, Zakur, or anything along those lines, but they, they do have a, a theology rooted in sort of Sufi concepts that uh, focuses on sort of uh, the relationship between the Quran and the Hadith as the fundaments of Islam, but then the universe as lo- at, at large as a sort of canvas upon which those fundaments are is reflected and, and, and can be appreciated. And uh, Said Norsi, this theologian, was persecuted during his own life, spent most of its uh, most of his adult life in prison, and the group itself remained very marginal and uh, often harassed by the state until about that period of the 1980s, at which point you had a new openness to both Alevi and Sunni civil society organizations and religious communities in Turkey. Finally, and uh, perhaps most controversially, though at the time I didn't realize that this would be the case, I focused on the Gulen community uh, or the, uh, they go by many names now, uh, but the group uh, centered around the writing theology and initiatives of Fethullah Gulen. Uh, I say most controversially because uh, some of your listeners may know that this is the very group that has been held responsible for the coup attempt in Turkey in 2016. When I encountered them in the mid 2000s, 2006, 2007, there were there was at that point uh, a relationship of affinity and indeed to some extent a, a political alliance between the supporters of Prime Minister at that time Prime Minister Erdogan and uh, the group surrounding. Gülen, who himself lives in rural Pennsylvania, as you may know, one of the more interesting sort of strange facts about all of uh, this recent political controversy in Turkey and, well, uh, elsewhere. The Gülen group always presented themselves as, in some sense, the most contemporary pro-diversity, liberal, tolerant, uh, Sufi-inspired Sunni Muslims that one could imagine. They held countless numbers of symposia, conferences, publications surrounding themes of interreligious tolerance and dialogue. Indeed, dialogue was their keyword. And they were quite active at that time in Turkey. They had many associations and foundations. Uh, They were, as well as the famous Gülen schools, which uh, were on the model of charter schools. Indeed, there were a lot of charter schools in the United States. Some some of them still exist, I suppose, but uh, sort of semi-private, semi-public uh, schools for Turkish children, as well as private businesses, media outlets, newspapers, so on and so forth. So a really important group at that time. All of that, at least in Turkey, is now non-existent. It's all been uh, rendered illegal after, after July 15th, 2016, and their property was seized by the state. Uh, so, uh, and this is a place where I could then speak more about some of the aftermath and afterlife of, of the topics that I write about in the book. Of course, since I was conducting my research in the mid and late 2000s primarily, I had no, I really had no anticipation that this group would become uh, so politicized in the way that they did, uh, which perhaps speaks to my own naivete. But uh, just briefly, I should say that theologically speaking, Gulen himself was a follower, is a follower of the figure I mentioned before, the theologian side Norsi. So there are also a lot of 
affinities and and at least previously ties between those two groups. Uh, now, however, the enthusiasts of Said Norsi in Turkey have done their best to distinguish themselves very clearly from the Gulen community because they recognize, or the Gulen movement, because they recognize that this is politically uh, uh, very dangerous in Turkey nowadays to have any whiff of Gulen about you. Now, uh, the other key part to this uh, project is this idea of religious freedom. Um, and yeah, I think, you you know, this, this is a topic, uh, especially in American religious history uh, and its kind of global reach, uh, has been, been gaining a lot of uh, you know, kind of great scholarship. And I think you really add to this uh, in interesting ways. Um, so where, where does this idea of religious freedom fit into your project? How is it defined in the Turkish context? Um, and, and why is religious freedom uh, championed as a uh, political ideal? Thank you. That's a great question. And that'll uh, allow me to make a few more points, both ethnographic and conceptual that I had neglected. I really was inspired by, uh, well, uh, initially Winnie Sullivan's work, but then especially uh, Elizabeth Shakeman, Beth Shakeman Hurd's work on religious freedom as this discourse and this sort of policy principle that travels globally. Uh, uh, Beth Hurd's book came out just as I was beginning to finish the draft of my own book. And of course, it's not focused on Turkey specifically, though there is a chapter on Turkey, I believe, precisely because it allowed me to articulate something that I've been struggling with, which is why did all of these theologically sociologically and indeed historically different groups seem to come together to converge in certain ways in Turkey uh, in a manner that I hadn't yet clarified. And indeed it was precisely around that principle of religious freedom as both a legal and extra legal ideal that required advocacy and yet also then came to, to really shape the self-understanding of, of, of Muslims in Turkey, both Alevi and Sunni. And I think that was particularly what was interesting, that that for Alevis, uh, it, uh, what, what I mean to say here is that, uh, that despite religious freedom playing such a fundamental and constructive role in their own self-presentations and self-understandings, and here I'm talking about civil society activists within these institutions that I wrote about, there were very different notions of what that entailed, particularly across the Alevi-Sunni uh, divide. So for Alevis, this essentially implied a commitment to minority rights and privileges on the part of the state. And their criticism uh, was voiced and has been voiced very prominently in both in, in legal and then also uh, more sort of discursive realms as a criticism of the Turkish state's continued definition of Islam as exclusively Sunni. And so there have been court cases taken to the European Court of Human Rights, which uh, almost almost exclusively will always end in favor of the Alevi plaintiffs, and yet the Turkish uh, government hasn't, uh, has decided not to, to really abide by the decisions. Uh, but essentially for, for, for Alevi's uh, religious freedom becomes this vehicle for 
legitimating their presence in public at large as something that is not identifiable with Sunni Islam, which still remains uh, dominant and in some case, in some sense, the sort of baseline definition of Islam in Turkey. For Sunni activists, on the other hand, and here in particular, I'm talking about uh, members of the Noor community and then also the now erstwhile uh, Gulen movement, Religious freedom was not so much about minority rights, though there was some interest in that, uh, but rather about challenging the imperative that religion remain apolitical and relatively privatized and advocating for something that would look more like a public religion in Jose Casanova's sense. And that's one of the, uh, the concepts that I do use there. So all of these groups within civil society, in some sense, seize upon religious freedom as an ideal that is taken to be self-evident, but also as a powerful bludgeon, in some sense, with which to fight back against what they consider to be the state's incursions and monopoly over Islam. Uh, and so that's really why it became so central to the argument as such. I don't know if that uh, really... Somehow I feel like I'm missing some of the texture of that. but <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, people are going to have to read the book because you really are doing a lot of uh, kind of interconnected pieces here that uh, in the book you, you lay out very well and skillfully. And, uh, but, but yeah, I think this is making sense. Um, so uh, maybe, maybe we could talk a little bit about, um, you know, to continue this idea of kind of, interreligious tolerance and pluralism um what what forms does that take socially um uh, and then how does it affect the the, the groups that you're looking at because it seems like there's differences in those ways absolutely i think uh in in order to sort of uh strategically answer in a different sort of way i, I want to delve here into one of the specific contexts and stories that I talk about in the book. And that's namely the effort that began in the, this is somewhat later, and I actually conducted this research near the, near the very, well, just as I was writing the book simultaneously, there was an effort on the part of several, several NGOs surrounding uh, the Gulen movement or based within the Gulen movement on the one hand, and then a group of NGOs uh, from the uh, from the Alevi community surrounding this uh, Gem Foundation, uh, which is affiliated with one of the more prominent Alevi intellectuals in Turkey, Izetin Doğan, they came together and decided that it would be fantastic to promote something that they called a mosque Gem House, an intersectarian space of worship for both Alevis and Sunnis. Uh, so this was, uh, in some sense, a, a totally novel project in Turkey. And this is now in the, uh, it was coming about in 2010, 2011. Ground was actually broken for it in a, a fairly impoverished Ankara neighborhood in 2013, if I'm not mistaken. So I had the opportunity to conduct some research at the site and then also to talk to a variety of the members of the different groups that were the different institutions that were involved in funding and supporting the project, as well as others who were against it for a variety of reasons. Uh, 
The most fascinating thing about this was that on the one hand, this was framed as a watershed moment in interreligious tolerance or perhaps intra-religious. I mean, it depends on how one uh, how one defines uh, the religious, I suppose. Uh, on the one hand, this is a Muslim space. On the other hand, it's a space where a certain plurality within Islam, namely the Sunni Shia, or in this case Sunni Alevi distinction, is able to coexist and in a, sing- in a single space actually come to, if not merge, then at least exist in tolerant proximity. Uh, and that was the ideal. Uh, there were a variety of legal hurdles that had to be cleared because on the one hand, a mosque is by definition a state institution in Turkey and so therefore has to be approved as such and have an imam who is trained by the state. On the other hand, the so-called gem house, a, a space of worship for Alevis, is not recognized as uh, as an official institution, religious or otherwise, at all. So uh, in order to uh, massage and maneuver this, they had to come up with a, a variety of uh, legal and and definitional, uh, flexible definitional categories to what the space would be. But uh, the story ends rather, rather sadly, because even though ground was broken and there was at least among some members of both, uh, both the Alevi community and the Gulen movement enthusiasm over the prospect that there might be actual religious tolerance embodied in a, in a single uh, space of worship, when the coup attempt happened in 2016, uh, that uh, put an end to that, as it were, and the state seized the uh, seized the property as it did all other Gulen related uh, related real estate. I should say, however, that uh, you know the way that I'm I'm phrasing this makes it seem as though uh, this was an unproblematic project, but in fact, it was very troubled from the get go, precisely because for many Alevis, this raise the specter of potentially being assimilated to a Sunni norm. And in fact, most of my Alevi interlocutors and friends whom I spoke to about this project were very skeptical, as well as the fact, not, not to mention the fact that it was occurring in, a, in an, essentially an impoverished shantytown neighborhood where really there was more of a need for something like a soup kitchen or a hospital rather than an interreligious space of worship. Now, of course, there there might have been some some facilities associated with the space that w- would have filled those more material needs. And that's something I talk about in the book as well, the way in which these religious uh, foundations and associations have come to uh, answer the material needs of Turkish citizens in the withdrawal of the state from some of its welfare provision. That's an, another really key theme. But uh, to sum up here, there, there were was a constant, and I would say this was true across uh, the institutional divides as well as the sectarian divide between Alevis and Sunnis, a constant invocation of religious freedom and interreligious tolerance as mutually mutually constitutive and, and implying ideals. But at the same time, there was not necessarily always a lot of action to carry out those ideals, the one in case where that was there was some sort of interinstitutional initiative was this project that I've now talked about, and it came of naught precisely because one of the groups that was 
behind it was taken to have been involved in this coup attempt. And uh, the rest of the story is one of uh, total annihilation for the Gulen movement in Turkey. So, uh, so ultimately, it's you'll have to one will have to write a history of what might have been in order to yeah. uh, think about that a bit more thoroughly. So um, in addition to these kind of spatial contexts, which you kind of outlined and then uh, told us about several of these other contexts um, throughout the conversation, you also look at uh, kind of what we might think of as temporal practices of Muslim civil society. Um, And I I really found this part interesting. So how do do these groups resolve kind of the past and the present? How do they negotiate kind of ideas about modernity and tradition? Well, this was, uh, again, thank you, uh, 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 something that really came to the fore uh, of my attention as I began to write the book and think about uh, all of the different contexts where I'd conducted research. And uh, as I frame it in that chapter, it really does have to do with the way in which actors who are affiliated with the state and have state legitimacy present Turkish history as a single story and the way in which Islam fits and does not fit into that story. Uh, and in many ways, you know, there are a variety of strategies that are, that are taken up. One of the more interesting ones, which uh, I'm even hoping to pursue a bit in the future is say, for instance, the figure of Rumi or Mevlana, who of course was uh, not, uh, not Turkic uh, as, as you probably know, uh, a Persian speaking uh, uh, poet philosopher from, I guess he was from uh, what is now Afghanistan, but uh, came to reside in central Anatolia. He's remembered and understood as this model of and for sort of how best to put it, a kind of Islam that is open to the to, to the sort of profundity of the world and can act as a sort of in in almost a new age sense a uh, a a model for for sort of uh, what it might be mean to be a Muslim in the contemporary world and that's on the part uh, in particular of, of Gulen uh, movement actors that I talk about some of their sort of invocations of of Rumi, particularly as a beacon for this notion of interreligious tolerance and a a sort of liberal uh, version of Islam. On the other hand, you do have uh, more fraught negotiations or what I call temporal practices of tradition. And here I was trying to think through a lot of of what anthropologists of Islam following Talal Assad have, have, have worked on in recent years, the notion of a discursive tradition that brings past precedents and future ideals into conversation with each other through present practice, right? Uh, So uh, an interesting example there is this ritual of the gem for uh, Alevis, a a ritual that in the past was understood to have occurred only in relatively relatively small rural context in which there would have been no stranger sociality in which everyone would have known each other. Everyone in the village knows each other, right? So in that context, the gem really would have been about both invoking the precedence of the martyrs of the Shia tradition, uh, Hassan, Hussein, Ali, but also about resolving intercommunal conflict 
intracommunal conflicts in a rural setting. That's obviously not the case in uh, in an urban setting. So uh, I write about this at fairly uh, fairly great length. One of the fascinating uh, maneuvers that's taken when you have a performance of a gem ceremony in these large foundations. Uh, the one that I write about was in Ankara, in fact, uh, on the occasion of Ashura, uh, which commemorates uh, the, the Battle of Karbala. You have the, the, the leader of the ceremony, uh, who is a, a ritual practitioner known as the Dede. Uh, he's the senior figure, uh, for the most part, always a man, unless you have sort of neo-Alevi groups. But uh, he says things along the lines of, if we were in a village, we would do it this way, but we're not, so we have to pretend. <laughs> uh, and these are the sort of negotiations that, with tradition that I found so fascinating. Uh, at the same time, you know, these are these are clearly quite different. The gem ceremony, uh, sort of invocations of Rumi as a figure. In another section, I talk about the practice of ichtihad or authoritative interpretation based on the precedence of the tradition. This is within the Sunni context. These are very different discursive traditions, but they're all framed in some ways by these other ideals of religious freedom, liberty, interreligious tolerance in ways that I still haven't entirely, you know, I, I think there's still an aporia there. I'm not totally satisfied with the analysis that I give in the book, but I, I do think there's more to be said about that. Uh, and uh, and hopefully I will have a chance to say it. <laughs> you also deal with the past um, through uh, Istanbul's relationship to an Ottoman uh, history. Um so how, how is kind of nostalgia for an Ottoman heritage uh, deployed in the city for, for what purposes? Um, and then uh, to what effect for your communities? Because it, it does affect them in different ways. Uh, thank you. This also will very nicely, I think, lead into my current project, which in some ways is, is quite distant, both geographically, well, especially geographically from uh, from my first book. Uh, and I can also, if you're curious, go into some of the reasons why I, I can't even really conduct research in Turkey anymore. That's one of the sort of small tragedies of, uh, of thinking about this book for me now. Uh, you set out to write something that feels like a record of the present, and it quickly becomes uh, something that uh, is ancient history in a way. But uh, as far as uh, Ottoman nostalgia in Istanbul is concerned, this is this is a topic that really does link quite clearly to my new project, which is on memories and legacies of both the Ottoman and Habsburg empires in a in a region broadly extending from Istanbul in the southeast to Vienna in the northwest. And I can say more about that momentarily if you'd like. But uh, I was immediately taken once I arrived in Istanbul by the way in which the Ottoman past was both referred to as a model for particularly questions of interreligious tolerance. And this is the uh, somewhat famous, somewhat misunderstood Millet system of the Ottoman Empire, whereby the differing religious communities, uh, particularly Christians Jew and Jews were, well, Orthodox Christians and Jews were self-governing. Uh, and it wasn't quite as simple as all of that. But nonetheless, there was this invocation I found, particularly among members of uh, Sunni civil society organizations of the Ottoman past as a precedent for religious tolerance and interreligious plurality in the present. 
And then on the other hand, uh, equally fascinating, uh, if in a in a in an in an inverse way, the deep skepticism and fear expressed by Alevis over the legacy uh, in general, over the legacy of, of the Ottoman Empire. This often uh, was referred to specifically to the uh, to the bloody pogroms of several different sultan, sultans, notably Selim the Grim uh, in, in the 16th century. He received his epithet because of uh, the massacres against Alevis, Kuzelbash, as they were known then, that he, uh, he advocated and allowed. Uh, so in any event, uh, what became fascinating to me was the way in which increasingly, even with architectural projects uh, and new mosques especially, the built environment of, of Istanbul is privileging its Ottoman past and creating neo-Ottoman uh, additions to the city that lend it a, a, a very one-dimensional and yet quite powerful Ottoman character uh, and the way in which this produces senses of affiliation on the part of some of its residents, particularly devout Sunnis, uh, and alienation on the part of others, uh, certainly Kemalist, secularist, uh, uh, bourgeois residents, but also Alevis. Uh, and so I expand on that by, by trying to think through what sites are available for different forms of nostalgia uh, and also to theorize nostalgia after, uh, after uh, a literary critic, uh, Svetlana Boim, who has this notion of uh, restorative and reflective nostalgia and their distinctions. One can also think about the work of Orhan Pamuk here, which uh, which engages in a lot of uh, poetic poetic reflection about the Ottoman past and the city after the Ottomans had passed. So uh, again, I'm going off a bit on tangents, but uh, hopefully that gives you a sense uh, of this. Uh, basically, how one remembers the Ottoman past has become one of the key fault lines in the urban politics of Istanbul today and in Turkey more broadly. And, and that's something that extends beyond the communities that I was working with, but was certainly present in, in very dramatic ways in the way they understood themselves and in the way they spoke about their institutions and initiatives. Um. Well, Jeremy, there, there's so much to this book. Um, I think I think it would be interesting to hear a little bit about the kind of afterlife of the project because uh, there there have been dramatic political and religious shifts uh, in the Turkish landscape. So um, yeah, so what what's happened to your communities uh, since your study, um, and and how might we account for some of these recent developments? <laughs> this is a question that could easily take us another hour to address, but I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, there are a couple ways of answering it. So I think I'll, I'll begin by saying that uh, there's another context that I haven't even uh, touched on here, which is the ongoing and tragic, uh, ultimately what amounts to a civil war in, in the southeast of Turkey uh, between the, the Turkish army and then uh, a variety of uh, Groups largely affiliated with the uh, the PKK, uh, uh, the Kurdish um, revolutionary group, uh, which the English acronym is now escaping me, or the English name is escaping me. All of that has been exacerbated, of course, by uh, events in Iraq and Syria, uh, and but really. Uh, 
really it's I think worth worth saying quite clearly that the Turkish uh, the Turkish military has engaged in a war against the citizens of the southeast quite uh, quite uh, cynically in, in the last decade. Uh, not all of them and not all of the time, but there has been a lot of destruction there. The reason I mention this is because uh, there have been a variety of initiatives on the part of Turkish academics to call for an end to uh, to the civil war in, in the Southeast, known as Academics for Peace. Many of those uh, based at Turkish universities who've signed the Academics for Peace uh, petitions have found themselves removed from their jobs and in, 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 in the worst cases imprisoned. Uh, I myself have supported some of those initiatives uh, and in com- combination with the fact that I also have written about the now uh, pariah Gulen movement and Gulen community, uh, I, I, it's not a very good time, unfortunately, for me to do research in Istanbul. So the afterlife of my own project has been one of, uh, of melancholy in a way because I don't even know that it's okay for me to travel uh, to Istanbul any longer. As far as my communities go, and and, and this is really, I shouldn't call them my communities, it's communities in the book go, and this is really the more important story because uh, my my mobility is really not that, that important, but the life livelihoods of the people whom I worked with certainly is, uh, as I've already said, uh, the Gulen movement, which, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating in a variety of ways because in some sense they were, sociologically speaking, the group that had the most overlap with the supporters of the uh, Justice and Development Party, the party of President Erdogan, they are now entirely underground. Many of them have fled out of the country or are imprisoned. And essentially, as as a, a religious and, and social movement, political movement in Turkey, they no longer exist uh, because uh, they've been dismantled. Alevis... You know, it's difficult for me to say what the current state is. I think there's a, a broad-based skepticism, certainly toward uh, toward President Erdogan and the rise of what you might call Sunni majoritarianism in Turkey, and uh, a lot of fear surrounding it. But at the same time, there's, I think, an interest in maintaining the spaces that have been carved out within largely uh, the field of civil society in the last 25 or 30 years. And for the most part, I think Alevis have weathered the storm in Turkey a bit better. Uh, well, certainly better than the Gulen movement, but, uh, uh, and, and to the extent that there are even some, some indications that some of the major Alevi causes, uh, cause celeb, <laughs> I don't know why I'm speaking in French, but such as the, uh, such as the legal recognition of gem houses as spaces of worship, that these might actually, uh, in fact, in the coming years, uh, there might be some some positive movement on them. Uh, so it remains to be seen. Again, my 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 information here is also not terribly up to date uh, due to my own circumstances. And then finally, with the third group that I that I talk about in depth in the book, the the Noor community uh, related to the Gulen. Gulen movement initially, they. What's interesting there is the attempt really to d- definitively distance themselves from the Gulen movement, which wouldn't have been the case when I was doing research. There were certainly ties of affiliation and uh, a sort of shared sensibility, but now that's uh, that's because of the political situation. It's necessary constantly to demonstrate that, uh, despite having 
a sort of similar theological and religious sensibility, followers of Said Norsi are not followers of Fethullah Gülen. Now, um, because of your circumstances and uh, the kind of shifting uh, context of of the, the subjects you're interested in, uh, where has this brought your scholarship uh, in the kind of projects you're working on now and uh, how, how you foresee them going? Uh, great. I, I, I realize I've, I've spoken at probably uh, greater length than I should have, so I'll try to be as succinct as possible here. I now lead a what's called a, a Max Planck research group at the Max Planck Institute for the Study of Religious and Ethnic Diversity, itself a very long-winded title uh, here in, in, in Germany, that is devoted to the collective memories, forms of nostalgia, legacies, and also forms of erasure and amnesia of the Ottoman and Habsburg empires uh, today. It's anchored in eight cities, uh, one of which is Istanbul, uh, but uh, obviously uh, the others, uh, each of them in a, a different uh, nation state. Uh, Thessaloniki in Greece, which plays a, a small role in my book as well. Uh, Sarajevo, Belgrade, uh, Sarajevo in Bosnia, Belgrade in Serbia, Zagreb in, uh, in Croatia, which is also my, my second home. Uh, Budapest in Hungary, Vienna in Austria, of course, and Trieste in uh, in Italy, and really the uh, so this is a, a a clearly interdisciplinary, interregional project. Uh, uh, we have at the moment four scholars, including myself, working on it. But the real overarching ambition and aspiration, and uh, sort of hope, is that by Uniting a perspective on how the Habsburg Empire and the Ottoman Empire is nostalgized, is understood in contemporary cities, in political cultures, but also in consumer culture, uh, in architectural projects, really that uh, we can come to a more textured and multidimensional perspective on how imperial pasts continue to exist in the present, whether they be Ottoman, Habsburg, or otherwise. So religion uh, and Islam obviously play a very uh, major role in this, uh, just to give you a, a very brief sense of one of the many different uh, sort of uh, small projects that compose this larger research group. I've, I've been looking into uh, a variety of Muslim grave sites in contexts in Southeast and Central Europe that are not considered to be traditionally Muslim at all. Uh, some in Croatia, in, in the city of Zagreb, a, a military cemetery in, uh, in southern Austria, in the state of Styria, a former mosque uh, on the, uh, in the Alps of Slovenia, these sorts of sites. Uh, so religion and Islam are certainly a, a major aspect of the new project, but they're in some sense uh, contextualized within a broader array of topics, themes, and concepts related to collective memory and imperial legacies in this really quite fascinating and rich region. Uh, so I'll, I'll leave it at that for the moment, I think. Well, well Jeremy, good luck with, uh, with those and, and, and leading your uh, group. Uh, and thanks for writing this, this wonderful book, Muslim Civil Society and the Politics of Religious Freedom in Turkey. Thank you so much, Christian. It was a great pleasure to speak with you, and I'll look forward to continuing to follow your work as well. 
That was my conversation with Jeremy Walton about Muslim civil society and the politics of religious freedom in Turkey, published with Oxford University Press in 2017. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies, and we hope you'll join us again.